This is Ziggler Show number 397, and we are going to inspire your true performance by bringing you one of the most brilliant shows to date, starring Simon Sinek, best-selling author and the guy who brought us the second most watched TED Talk of all time, which has now eclipsed 30 million views. In this show, we hit on what true leadership is. It'll be something you may think you've heard before, but listen in. You're going to hear a twist. Uh, you're going to hear why your why is of ultimate importance, and well, you you know what? I'm going to let Simon himself give you a bit of a tease from the show. No, no. So I don't give the advice, do what you love. Okay. It's not useful advice. Okay. You know, find your passion. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, it's, it's, it's true, but amorphous and useless advice. And so what I've decided to do in my work, in my books, rather than just giving people unactionable advice is to explain in biological and anthropological terms, what that even means. So now, folks, let's do this thing. You're what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we continue the legacy of Zig Ziggler, the world's foremost authority on the fuel for everything we pursue, motivation, inspiration, and a confident self-image. We apply that fuel to leadership, personal growth, sales, faith, family, and success. Our foundational purpose is to inspire true performance, and this is the goal of every show. I'm Kevin Miller, show host and devoted evangelist of inspiration, Tom Ziegler, Zig's son and the CEO of Ziegler, and I come to you every week to discuss Zig's teachings and bring you the absolute best of today's most inspirational leaders. We get down to the roots of what will absolutely expand human potential, your potential, to it. Folks, a quick note before we begin regarding the Ziegler Facebook page. For a long time, the focal point was posting five or more quote posters Per day, we take the timeless quotes from Zig and other world leaders, many of our guests, and put them on a beautiful background image. And those grew the Facebook page to over 4 million followers. Most posts would get 2 million or more views. But we then shifted to posting articles to try something new. Thought we'd try that value for you. And while it did have some benefit, it admittedly lessened the personal interactions. So as of about this recording, we are shifting back, but we're going to make it better even than it was before. That's our intent. You'll get the best quotes on inspiring images as we did before. You will get some articles, but you also, we're going to post questions for this show and talk to you on there. Uh, Also, we'll be posting some short videos uh, value from Tom Ziegler and myself and some of the other Ziegler leaders and personalities and a good bit more. So you can find us if you're not there already, facebook.com slash Zig Ziglar, or just type Zig Ziglar into the search engine. So Simon Sinek today, no wonder he has one of the most watched Ted talks of all time. He's incredibly insightful. And as you'll hear him talk about in this interview, 
his care, his perspective on personal development and success is giving actionable advice, not pithy, vague counsel. And it's a pet peeve of his. Uh, so what you're going to get in this show are things you can take action on. There's going to be some paradigm shifting things in here. Now, a quick bio on Simon, if you don't know him, he's an unshakable optimist. He believes in a bright future and our ability to build it together. He's often described as a visionary thinker with rare intellect, and he spends a majority of his time teaching leaders and organizations how to inspire people. So he's got a bold goal to help build a world in which the vast majority of people go home every day feeling fulfilled by their work. And we're going to break that down in the show today. So he is leading a movement to inspire people to do the things that inspire them. He's a trained ethnographer and he's the author of two books. The first global bestseller, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. That's the one that the TED Talk is about. When I first saw that, I got maybe five minutes into it before I stopped it or paused it, went to Amazon, bought the book immediately. Uh, it's incredible. His newest book is the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. We talk some about that uh, topic in the show today as well. So you can find all you want about science and how to engage with him at startwithy.com. All right, so and if this show brings up questions or thoughts, let us have them by submitting at ask.zigshow.com. You can go there and write it in or leave an audio that we can use in the show, ask.zigshow.com, or just email us simply at ask at zigshow.com. So ask.zigshow.com. You can go submit it or just an email, ask at zigshow.com and submit it there. Well, here then, Tom Ziegler and I bring you this powerful interview with Simon Sinek. Well, Simon, hey, I'm a huge fan of your book, Start With Why. I was sent a link to that TED Talk years ago. And before I got very far into it at all, I searched for your book, bought it on the spot. Uh, in my opinion, it is a, a must read for anyone. I've given a good amount of those books away. I mean, I, I can't personally get myself out of bed without knowing my why, and it must be far greater than and, and deeper than my daily duties. So I'm incredibly grateful for your work and your effort to get that message out. And I just thank you immensely for taking the time to be with us and the Ziegler audience today. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for giving me a forum to share my ideas. Well, it's a, an absolute Absolute honor. So yeah, I do in this, uh, this interview today, I want to talk about the message from your book, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. Um, the Ziegler audience, we've got many business owners from large corporations to small businesses to solopreneurs, but we also have a lot of you know employees and sales rep and independent contractors and more. And I, I want to talk about how your message is relevant, of course, to everyone, how we can all use the principles to aid our personal success. First, however, I do want to get a little context on you and your story for everybody. I mean, in your, I was in reading about you, you got a BA degree in cultural anthropology. You went to law school, then to advertising. You look to have been really successful there. You started your own ad firm. Next, we find you in October 2009, releasing your book, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. And in December 2011, that book topped the list of bestsellers for corporate America. Then January, 2015, your talk, how great leaders inspire action was number three on the list of the 20 most popular Ted talks of all time. So you look to have now fully devoted yourself to inspiring and motivating others. And I'd love to get a brief understanding of the journey that brought you from 
from those early, from a, a, anthrop- a cultural anthropology to where you are today? My journey is very similar to a lot of people, and it was born out of pain. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, this was never intended as an academic or commercial exercise. Um, I had reached the point in my life when I had my own uh, strategic marketing business where I had lost my passion for what I was doing. And, um, you know, people gave me stupid advice, you know, do what you love, follow your passion. You're like, thanks. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know? Um, and I spent, you know, more time that's probably comfortable, um, pretending that I was happier, more successful and more in control than I felt. And it's a pretty dark place to be, to be honest. All that lying, hiding and faking takes a lot of, takes a lot of energy. And it wasn't until a, a good friend of mine came to me concerned about me, did that give me the courage to then tackle the problem head on. And there was a confluence of events, which I'm very grateful for. And long story short, I was able to discover this naturally occurring pattern uh, based on the biology of human decision making, that every single organization on the planet, even our own careers, always function on the same three levels, what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Every single person on the planet knows what they do. This is the job you have, the product you sell, the service you offer, right? Every, the question you get asked when you sit next to somebody in a plane, so what do you do? And we all know the answer, right? And some of us know how we do it, whether you call it your differentiating value proposition or your proprietary process. It's the things that you think make you different or special or stand out from the crowd. But very, very few people can clearly articulate why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. And by why, I don't mean to make money. That's a result. By why, I mean what is your purpose, what is your cause, what is your belief Why did you get out of bed this morning and why should anyone care? And that's when I realized that I knew what I did and I knew how I did it, but I couldn't tell you why. And that's why I felt the way I felt because you have to have all three pieces. And so I I sort of committed myself to finding this thing called the why, um, was able to discover my why, which restored my passion to levels that I'd never experienced prior. Um, And I did what anyone would do. I shared it with the people I loved. And my friends started making crazy life changes. And they would invite me to share it with the people that they loved. So I'd show up at someone's apartment in New York City and literally stand in a studio apartment and people would sit on the floor and I'd talk about this thing called the why. And it just grew from there. It was totally organic. People just kept inviting me and I just kept saying yes. Your why then? What is, at that point, what did you discover your why was? Well, it's the same thing then that it is now. You only have one why for your whole life. You don't get to change it. Okay. Um, it's, it's the sum total of who we are, right? It's the, it's our upbringing and our parents and our teachers. Um, you are who you are. Um, so my why is to inspire people to do the things that inspire them. So together we can change our world. And I don't care how I get there. I speak, I write, I teach, I advise the route to me. I'm agnostic, but the destination is crystal clear. And I have a vision based on my why of the world that I want to live in and the world that I've devoted my career to help build, which is to create a world to, in, in which the vast majority of people um, wake up every single morning inspired to go to work, feel safe when they're there, and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm committed to entirely. So you just mentioned a minute ago the uh, counsel you got in regards to, you know, go work at your passion and, and, yeah. and how frustrating that was. And yet in the book, Leaders Eat Last, you do start off with, hey, wouldn't it be great to work at something you love to do? Those right. seem at odds. So explain that. Like where does love of work even come from? You know, what does, how does one go through a process to discover one's own passion? What, is it, what does it take? 
to create an environment where trust and cooperation are normal as opposed to just saying, you know, go work with people you trust. Like, thank you. Thank you very, very much. So, so my work, I like to think, is, uh, uh, is, is and, and the reason my work is that way is, is not for any lofty reasons, but people gave me advice that I couldn't action. And so how dare I offer counsel or, or ideas that other people can't action? So Simon coached me on this. When I work with companies, I talk about this concept of aligning someone's personal dream with the corporate vision. Sure. Right? And so it's not about necessarily doing what you love, but what you do is the vehicle to get you to what, you, what your why is, what your dream is. Yeah. And, and so in that process of every time I do something, I get closer to my why – then I'm waking up and I'm working for my why. So help yeah. me in the in that. Help me rephrase that and tell me what's yeah. the difference in your mind between a dream and a why. Sure. So I don't want without the the risk of getting into a semantic debate, right? Your why, like I said, it's what drives you. It's what inspires you. It's the value you bring to the world. It's why your friends love you. It's why your colleagues need you on the team. It's who you are. It's basically an origin story, right? And a dream might be something you imagine off in the future, like a vision, right? A world or a place that you would like to get to. And your dreams are going to be based on your why because your dreams inspire you and your why is that sort of deep-seated drive inside you. And so it's, it's not so much about finding a company whose vision aligns with your dream so that you will find your why. It's when you understand your why you can more easily find a company whose dream, who, where your dream and their vision align so that you can work together to advance your own mutual visions and dreams. The work you do helps them advance their vision and the opportunity they afford you helps you advance your dream. It becomes partnership. And we value each other. I value the company and the company values me. And we feel like we're working towards the same ends. Think of it like, like an army, right? I may be a soldier in, in, the, in the organization, but the organization itself and all the generals, we all want to get to the same place. And so we have many roles and we offer, we offer our talents in different ways. Um, but it's, but it's, it's mutually beneficial. It's not that the, the company affords me the opportunity to find my why. My why pre-exists. Uh, but the company affords me a place to live in balance with my why. I have more questions just on that. Does that but make I, sense? Does that make sense? Yes. It does. Yeah, and I want to dig into that. I'm not ready to leave uh, your story initially yet. I mean, you have one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. I saw over 26.5 million downloads on the TED site, but then I saw uh, I saw other downloads, you know, on, on uh, other postings. So I'm guessing 30 million ish or so on the a lot on how how great leaders inspire action video. Uh, the best content in the world we know will not get far without some masterful presentation skills. And I talk about that with Zig a lot because he's revered as this great presenter, like he was just born doing what he did. But we also know he was one of the most uh, fervent students of that craft. So in seeing so many speakers and presenters in my own time, I mean, Simon, you are so matter of fact in your presentations, so exacting and authentic and engaging. It's hard not to chalk you off just as superhuman. And I'm not looking to discount that, but for our listeners who are striving and often have the propensity to, to discount their own possible brilliance, tell us, is your speaking and presenting skill just Full out natural talent and ability, or have you worked at it a little bit? No, of course it comes from practice. And the longer I've been doing it, the, you know, the better I got. You know, you can go back in time, and I probably was a, a, a bumbling idiot, but you know, I'm just less of a bumbling idiot now. 
so so no no of of course and um you know um I, I i cheat i mean i i i freely admit that i cheat um i only talk about things i care about and i only talk about things i understand um i cannot give you an impassioned speech about the migration patterns of a of a european swallow predominantly because i don't care and so passion is not this thing that you manufacture. Like we all have passion, but we're just not all passionate for the same things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things I always recommend to people, especially if they work in a corporate environment and you're, you have to give a presentation on something that you may not be passionate about, a budget, um, you have to find something that that budget will advance that you are passionate about. So it gives depth and meaning to, the, to this work that you're about to present. So it becomes very personal. And when it's very personal, just like people talk passionately about their kids, people who aren't good presenters can tell you fantastic stories about their kids. It's because they actually care. And so, and so I, it's so personal to me, the things that I talk about, right. that, that the passion oozes out of me. It's not, it's not some trick, you know? Um, and, uh, and the other thing is I, I think out loud. So I freely admit I don't have all the answers, um, but I'm totally open to the idea of thinking it through while standing on a stage, um, which is why I prefer to use a piece of paper and a butcher block instead of a PowerPoint. Because a PowerPoint presupposes that I know the direction and I know all the answers, and, the, and I don't. And so I love Q&A because Q&A, people sometimes ask me questions I don't know the answer to. And I'll say it on stage. I'll say, like, okay, not really sure, but let me, let me give this one a try. And I'll think. You'll see me thinking out loud on the stage. Um, and if I'm giving a long-winded answer, it's because I'm, I don't know. And so, uh, I, you know, one of the biggest lessons I ever learned in my whole career is I don't have to know all the answers and I don't have to pretend I do. And so I think that's where the authenticity comes from, which is the stuff actually matters to me. And I, and I, and I really am trying to learn more every day. I don't like the term expert, you know. Expert presupposes that you know everything. I consider myself a student, even of my own subject. My, my education may be more advanced than others, but my goodness, I have so much more to learn. And so I don't show up anywhere, even on a stage, with the belief that I know more than the audience. I show up on a stage as a student who's willing to share what I've learned and hope to learn even more. I love that. I can remember watching Dad in his 80s taking notes from a presenter in their 20s. He always had the student mindset. There was always something else to learn. So that's just, I think, I think when people look at dad and, and people who really not just um, command respect on the stage, but engender uh, a desire from the audience that I wish I could spend more time with them. It's yeah. that transparency that it's okay if I don't know everything because nobody does. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the things your dad um, absolutely imbued and, and something I try and bring to my work is a giver's heart. You know, um, the best presenters I know, they, they never show up to take, they show up to give. And you can always tell, you can always tell when some guy stands on a stage and says, he starts giving you his credentials. I have six PhDs and I've worked with some fortune 100 CEOs and who cares, man? The fact that you're standing on a stage, you got all the credibility you need. Somebody else decided that your message was worth listening to. That's New York City in the background. I hear that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, so I, I, and, and then you see the first PowerPoint slide is my Facebook page, my website, my Twitter handle. Somebody asks a question and they say, well, you're going to have to read my book. That's a taker's mentality. They want something from the audience. Business, recognition, applause, 
adoration, whatever. And the best speakers I know, and your dad embodied this beautifully, is they show up to give. They show up. I, I got some stuff in my head, ideas, lessons, whatever. I'll tell you everything you want to know, anything, and, and, and I'll give it all away. Because the, the, and when you show up with a giver's heart, people can tell. You know, we're, we're, we're social animals and we're very good at sussing out someone's motivations. Like we all know when we go into a store if someone's paid on commission because you can feel it, right? You, can, you, can, you, you know how somebody's incentivized based on how they treat us. And so when somebody shows up as a taker, the whole audience knows. And they don't root for your success. And they like to ask you difficult questions just, just to watch you struggle. When you show up as a giver, people root for your success, they lean in, they listen, and they're totally relaxed and okay if you fumble or make mistakes. That comes across. I mean, I think that may be one of the most – I love hearing you define it because I could not completely define why I was so engaged in your talk. I mean, I love the content, but just your delivery, and yes, I do. You can feel people so quickly there. So, folks listening, I, I would really – encourage you watch the videos not just for the content of what Simon brings to us but how he does it as well and I did see when I was looking at some of the videos that you have some videos that I don't know if you published them or other people did where they were asking you about your methodology and I saw one it was a five-minute clip on how you begin a presentation that was it was incredible and again folks I, I would go to YouTube and type in his name and learn as well uh the you shared your initial interest in your own why and how that organically happened with other people and you engage with them is that is it as simple as that 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 is what gave you that focal point and led up to then you putting together the content and the ultimate delivery on ted on the ted talk was just from that experience and realizing the gravity of it as a friend of mine once said, it takes a long time to become an overnight success, right? Yes. You know, the, all of, somebody, asked me, somebody asked me, how long did it take you to write Start With Why? And I said, every, every day of my life up until that day. Mm. You know, right. it's like these things are, I wish they were black and white. Yeah. But they're more evolutionary, you know? And, and, and so the original bumbling version of Start With Why, of the golden circle when I articulated it, the, the initial reaction that people gave me is, you can't call it the golden circle because it's cheesy. <laughs> okay. You know? And I said, but I like it, you know? And I had a reason why I called it the golden circle because I knew about the golden formula and the golden hour and these things that seem to have mystical applications beyond, you know, in sort of multiple arenas. I thought, well, this is pretty golden too, right? It's got so many applications. I'll, I'll, I'll call it the golden circle. Um, and now it's fine. It's not cheesy at all. Um, so, you know, there, there was a, there was a, I think the thing that saved me, you know, there was a stubbornness to the belief, you know, stubbornness can get you in a lot of trouble because it sometimes means you're closed to feedback. I'm always open to feedback. That doesn't mean I always have to agree with it. Um, and when they gave me feedback on how I can improve, how I can be better, what resonated, what doesn't, didn't resonate, what worked, what didn't work, I took it all to heart. But when they gave me feedback and challenged my actual vision, I just threw it out. Hmm. I just ignored that. And so, um, you know, it was practice. And, and by the time I gave that TED Talk, I'd already been given an hour, an hour and a half version of that talk for three years. I'd been talking about this since 2006. That talk came out in 2009. The challenge I had was just doing it in 18 minutes. But, but I knew my stuff. 
you know, I, I, um, and I, and I, I'd been asked difficult questions already a lot. Um, I, I, I think the best thing that anyone can do is to talk to a, a, a skeptical or cynical audience. Um, cause when we talk to a, a room of people who agree with us or even people from our own industry, they have the same frames of reference. Um, what ends up happening is we, we get away with saying things that aren't clear to the outside world, but they understand it. And so if you have to say it to anybody else, literally it falls on deaf ears. It's like talking to a five-year-old. You know, if you can convince a five-year-old of your ideas, you got something. Yeah. Um, so I, difficult questions are frustrating and sometimes we get defensive or we can try and answer the question. But that's what I went through. I went through a lot of, a lot of difficult questions and a lot of audiences who didn't get it and it got better. You're just a, a testimony, or a, I appreciate you saying that in regards to being true to your vision, but being open to how it plays out. I would hold up my hand to say I suffered from the opposite and lacking that maturity that I hope that I am better in now where I saw the vision. I was true to it, but I also wanted it to happen the way that I saw it. And, uh, I wish I did not have those scars from the past. Um, Great point there. Uh, so leaders... Here's, here's, here's one point, if I may. Please. Um, I think of this stuff like exercise or like brushing your teeth, right? Um, I could tell you the importance of exercise and you'll go to the gym and you'll come back and you'll look in the mirror and you'll see nothing. And you'll go the next day and you'll come back and you'll look in the mirror and you'll see nothing. And so you may give up because you don't see any impact from the effort you're spending and you're in pain. So empirically, you say this doesn't work. And so there's an element of faith and devotion, and that's kind of what why is. It's belief, right? That it's so important to you, even though you can't tell anybody how long it's going to take to work, you know it'll work. It's like brushing your teeth for two minutes twice a day does nothing unless you do it every day, right? And then it actually is really, really important. Um, and I think a lot of challenges that people have when, it, when it's these kinds of evolutionary growth is they try and put fixed dates. I'm going to be a great speaker in six months. Maybe, maybe. I'm going to become a great leader by the end of the year. It could happen. It could happen. Or you can devote yourself to brushing your teeth twice a day for two and a half minutes and, and practice every moment of every day. And at some point, I'm not exactly sure when, it'll all come together. And that element of patience, that you know it will work, you absolutely know in your heart of heart that it will work. It's like exercise, like eating healthy, like brushing your teeth. You just don't know when it will work. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you're okay with that vagueness, if you're okay with that grayness, you're off to the races. Because by putting um, arbitrary, because they are arbitrary, time frames or goals around these things, it, what happens if you don't make it, even though you're doing everything right? you beat yourself up over nothing and then you quit when you were just on the, you were just on the cusp. Right. So a commitment and a belief. Well, in leaders eat last a, and I want to get into some of your aspect of leadership there, a foundational message, you know, in so many ways you, I mean, you define true leadership in a way that 
resonated with me significantly and obviously did with a lot of, a lot of people. When you open the cover of the book, we're hit with leaders are the ones who run headfirst into the unknown. They rush towards danger, which you could take that in and of itself and say, okay, they're brave, they're risk takers, yada, yada. But then you continue with, to me, what was the crux? They put their own interests aside to protect us or to pull us into the future. Leaders would sooner sacrifice what is theirs to save what is ours. They would never sacrifice what is ours to save what is theirs. And you ultimately boldly say this is the only leadership. Without this type of leadership, we are not truly leaders. We simply have authority. Love that. People don't follow authority. And there are people with no authority that many will follow, making them leaders. So with this statement... I was curious as to where, literally, where your greatest hope is that current people in leadership will hear this and change and start putting their team's interests ahead of their own, or yeah. that people who already have a heart for this, uh, the, uh, this type of, uh, of service will be inspired by the message and pony up to take the mantle of leadership. Yeah. Where's your bet on where it'll have the most influence? Uh, hopefully both, but in truth. So there's no betting here. Okay. Um, there's process. There's method to madness, right? Um, there's something called the law of diffusion of innovations, which for me is religion. And it very simply states that all populations sift across the standard deviation, the old bell curve. If you have high performers, you have low performers, even if it's just a relative scale, right? Always. And what the law of diffusion tells us is that the first two and a half percent of that population on the left side of the curve are your innovators. The next 13, uh, and a half percent of the population are your early adopters. The next 34% are your early majority. The next 34% are your late majority. And the last 16% are your laggards. They all have different risk profiles and personality uh, characteristics. Your laggard, for example, the only reason they buy touchtone phones is because you can't buy rotary phones anymore, right? It's like it's, it's, they're just the last to come. Your early adopter and your innovator is very comfortable making a gut decision very comfortable making an intuitive decision, very comfortable paying a premium, sacrificing um, uh, time or energy to be a part of something that reflects their own beliefs. So people who stand in line to see the opening day of Star Wars for 10 hours where you could just go next week and buy a ticket and walk in, they believe that, that standing in 10 a- for 10 hours is worth it because it reflects something about who they are, right? And they're comfortable with that. The majority, which is everyone else, is absolutely more cynical and absolutely more practical. They absolutely care about things like price, quality, service, and features. Then they absolutely want to know what's in it for them. That's why when you offer this group something new or different, they say, well, what guarantee will I have that'll work? Or what are you going to give me if it fails? Or you have to offer some sort of price or promotion to help them get over the risk that they perceive. The early adopters and innovators, you don't have to give them anything. In fact, they're okay with it being imperfect. And so for me, when anybody says to me, convince me why I should lead this way, my answer is, no, don't. I'll get you later. Because all you've done is self-identify as a, as a member of the majority, and I recognize you're on your own time frame. It's not that you're a good person or a bad person. You're just on a different time frame. And so what I'm looking for are those early adopters and innovators, and there's a reason for it. Because as the law tells us, the law of diffusion tells us, When you achieve between 15 and 18% market penetration, a tipping point happens and it just goes. This is the science of tipping points. It is a social phenomenon. It's not up for debate. It is what it is. It's how social movements happen. It's how ideas spread and stick. You can pay people with prices, with low prices and promotions to buy. But if you you stop that, they stop buying. 
Just ask General Motors. They know all about that, right? They used to be the number one car seller in the world until they could no longer afford it because the promotions they were giving, they actually were losing money. And when they stopped the promotions, guess what happened? People stopped buying, right? So my work appeals to those who go, huh, there's something there. You may not have all the answers, but I think this might be worth it. And some of them are already doing it and want the affirmation or, the, or more tools. And some of them are open to what they were doing that may have worked in the past isn't working anymore. Or what they're doing, even though everybody tells them that they're doing the right thing, it doesn't feel right to them. Or they're struggling. They may be performing well with the numbers, but they're struggling to maintain loyalty or devotion or a fellowship amongst their people. Trust is, at a, is, is negative in their in their organization, and they, they're open-minded enough to say, maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe it's not them. You know? And those are the people I care about. And if I get enough of them, leadership in our country will just change. It'll just change. And that definition that you read is not my opinion. That is an anthropological definition. It is, it is where leadership com- comes from. There is a history, an anthropological history of where leaders come from and why we have them that goes back 50,000 years. So it's, it's not an opinion. It's, it's actually how human beings work. In there, you motive. So motive in this methodology of, of leadership uh, to those existing leaders who are you know, proudly sitting on the spoils of their position and aren't super attracted by the, by the idea of being selfless and sacrificial to their team then I hear you in essence saying, oh, okay, fine. Then go forth trying to succeed with your company without trust and cooperation in your employees. Um, to that degree, there's some simple, I mean, that's, it's bold that's face, perfect, black and white. That's a perfectly valid short-term strategy. Okay. You ignore all of my work and do things the way you want to do them and pit people against each other and, um, and, and, and lead command and control and, 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 and put your interests ahead of your people, it will work perfectly effectively for a short period of time. And it runs out. It always runs out. Even Jack Welch and GE needed a $300 billion bailout in 2008. In other words, it didn't work. It was built for the short term. Rankin, Yank, and all that nonsense, right? It was built for the short term. Things that last, things that last, are built uh, on, the, on, the, on the backs of people who believe in giving of themselves. And we call you leader not because you're at the top of the organization. We call you leader because you have the strength and confidence to go first towards the danger and first towards the unknown, and we will follow. But if you sacrifice us for yourself, then you set the tone, man. We're just going to follow. We're going to sacrifice you for ourselves or even sacrifice each other. So I, I got a I got a question. We talk a lot about helping people on a journey from survival to significance. And Dad kind of made this phrase real popular. He said, "You've got to be, do, and have. You've got to be the right kind of person, do the right things before you can have what life has to offer." Yep. And in our culture right now, uh, I love C.S. Lewis, and he said, "You know, we we are a soul with a body. We're not a body with a soul, right?" We're, yeah. And I saw a video recently, and it said, if you sit inside your car, you're not your car. Right. The, the color of our skin, the frame, whatever, that's not us. It's, it's the soul, right? It's the spirit. Right. Who you are. Right. Who you nope. are. And, yeah. and when I work with wounded warriors, I say, you know, 
in your a lot of people go into the military to, to rise up and go to that next level and instantly what they do and what they had is taken from them yeah and the who you are aspect can't be taken it it can be surrendered but it can't be taken yeah and so when I look at our culture I get concerned because uh, there's so many perspectives of worldview and and so here's a worldview. People either look at themselves as predominantly physical or predominantly spiritual. Yeah. And so my question for you is leadership and why we do it is spiritual. Is that something, I mean, can you comment on that? Or, or And the reason I say it is because one of my mentors said this. He said, the more physical a culture becomes, the reason we exist then the more likely it is for cowardice on the battlefield because it makes it makes biological sense to protect our physical nature at all costs. But when we're spiritual, that's another that's a different yeah. aspect. So I'm trying to just sort that out. You know, I wish the world was so binary uh, that I could just say it was this or that. <laughs> uh, and my my general belief in these discussions is it's not one or the other; it's both. You know. You know, like you hear people say, we're not, you know, we're human beings. We're not human doings. I'm like, uh, yeah, but you kind of got to do stuff to get things done. Otherwise, nothing would ever happen, right? It's not it's, one it's, or the other. It's, it's both. It's faith without works, right? What's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, even my own work. I don't think why is the end all be all. I think how matters and I think what matters. Because if it's just why, then you have a hippie commune and nobody gets anything done. And by the way, they don't feel very fulfilled either. You know, if it's all how and what, then you have an, an investment bank where nobody has any sense of anything, and that doesn't last either. In other words, it's all of it. We don't get to pick. And so is it the functional part or is it the spiritual part? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And if you're, the, if you're only a spiritual leader, you've got to learn how to function. And if you don't have that capacity yourself, you better learn to trust people. And if you're just a functional leader, you better learn that spiritual stuff because no one will trust you. So I, I think you, we have to work on ourselves as whole leaders uh, rather than this or that. Uh, to me, again, it's about balance. And like anything in the world, you know, it's about maintaining balance. I want to hit on uh, this aspect. You talk in, in your talk and in the book about the alpha in regards to leadership. And in, in digesting the, the book and I watched the video, I – I understand it for those who haven't delved in that much to rise to the top, to be the alpha, to be in leadership seems contrary to the service to others. If you can just help reconcile a seemingly uh, dichotomy in those two things, rising to the top and yet being that servant leader. Right. There's nothing wrong with hierarchy. It's how you choose to use the position once you have it. Right? Are you using the position of authority for selfish gain or for service and protection of others? Right? So there's nothing inherently wrong with hierarchy. It's, it's what we choose to do with it once we have it. Leaders may have rank. They just don't wear it. Right? Um, so the, the history of it is, again, as I said, these aren't my opinions. This is, just, this is just who we are. This is anthropology. So for 40,000 of the 50,000 years that our, that our species has roamed this planet, we lived in populations that were rarely bigger than about 150 people. Uh, it was only with farming about 10,000 years ago that we were able to maintain populations that were bigger because we could, you know, we had greater supplies of resources. So for 40 of the 50,000 years we've been on the planet, you have populations of about 150. There's still practical problems that emerge. Austere times with 
constrained resources, someone brings food back to the tribe, we all rush in to eat. And if you're lucky enough to be built like a football player, you can shove your way to the front of the line, right? But it's not a very good system because if you punched me this afternoon to get to the food, the odds are I'm probably not going to wake you and alert you to danger tonight. Not a very good system for the survival of the tribe, right? And so we evolved into these hierarchical animals where we're constantly assessing and judging each other who's higher in the pecking order. It's why we love, we love a ranking. You know, look at every business magazine on the planet has at least one, if not more, annual ranking issues. We love a ranking, right? We love, we love a hierarchy. And the reason is, is both formally and informally, we're constantly judging and assessing each other anyway. And when we assess that someone is of higher rank than us in the pecking order, formally or informally, we voluntarily step back and allow our alphas, allow those higher in the hierarchy, preferential treatment. So our alphas are allowed to eat first. And though I may not get to eat first, I'm guaranteed to get food and I don't get an elbow in the face. Good system. Nothing has changed in our modern day. We are perfectly comfortable with those higher in the pecking order receiving preferential treatment. I can prove it. There's not a single listener you have on this show, absolutely zero, that is morally offended by the idea that someone higher ranking in their company makes a higher salary than they do. No one is offended by that idea. We may think that person is completely ineffective in their job, but it doesn't viscerally, morally offend us that they make more money than us because they're higher ranking than us, right? The problem, however, is for the people who have the rank because the group is not stupid. We don't bestow rank and privilege on our leaders for nothing. There is a social contract that we give you all of that with an expectation that when danger threatens our tribe, that you, the one who's better fed, who's actually stronger, who's actually smarter, who actually has more confidence, you, you will be the one to rush towards the danger to protect us. That's why we're happy for you to have all those perks. No one is bothered by the fact um, that a good leader is well paid. The reason we're morally and viscerally offended by some of the banking CEOs and their disproportionate salaries and bonus structures has nothing to do with the numbers. It has to do with the fact that they have violated the anthropological definition of what it means to be a leader. We know that they allowed their people to be sacrificed so they could keep their bonuses and salaries. Or worse, they chose to sacrifice their people to keep their bonuses and salaries. This is what so morally offends us, not the numbers. If I told you we're going to give a $100 million bonus to Mother Teresa, do you have an issue with that? Not really. It's not the money. It's whether the person in the position of hierarchy, whether the person in the alpha position um, is doing their job, which is to take care of the tribe. Just like a parent feeds their child before they feed themselves, so must a leader take care of their people before they take care of themselves. When we hear stories of parents who leave their kids locked in a car so they can go out clubbing, we find that unbelievably offensive. We expect them to sacrifice their social lives to raise children, not the other way around. It's exactly the same thing. And so when we see and feel that those in positions of rank and hierarchy and authority would take care of our lives before they take care of their interests, we will reward them with our love and our loyalty and we will devote our blood and sweat and tears to see that their vision comes to life. 
And by, by the way, we will do so with pride. So in in this discussion and in your message, the significance, uh, I didn't miss that, of the statement of trust and cooperation are feelings, not instructions. And it, it harkens just to, Tom, what you cited from Zig, that foundational statement of you got to be the right person, you got to do the right things in order to have all that life has to offer. You've got to be the right person. So uh, if you're saying no policy, procedure, rule, guideline, or designed company culture is going to produce trust and cooperation, I mean, if you want that, you've got to be or, or hire a leader with the right character. And so I'm thinking from the business owner's perspective, if I'm looking for that in regards to getting those type of leaders in my company, uh, I didn't readily have a viable metric to discern a sacrificial leader that I'm going to bring on. I don't think there's a personality profile in disc or Myers Briggs necessarily. It's going to show me that, um, I speak to those business owners who are, who say, okay, I want that. How do I get that in? Sure, sure, sure. So it's, it's not necessarily the person, it's the environment. And this is what I learned when I wrote Leaders Eat Last. I thought it was the people. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, let's, I'm going to set out on a journey and research how you find those people. And I was wrong. What I learned was it's not the people, it's the environment. If you get the environment right, trust, cooperation, and all of those qualities that we desire in our leaders are the natural outcrops. Whereas if you get the environment wrong, cynicism, paranoia, mistrust, and self-interest prevail, Right? So, you know, everybody loves to quote, you know, get the right people on the bus. Get the right people on the bus. What bus? Which bus? Is the bus safe? Has the bus been, does it, has it had your annual inspections? Does it have, how are the shock absorbers? Who's driving the bus and where are they driving it? Right? We, we sort of ignore all those questions. And so the, you, you get the environment right. It's amazing how people will grow. Um, here, here's something that I find interesting. A, a, a member of SEAL Team 6 taught me this. When they're looking to evaluate whether a guy should be put on SEAL Team 6, one of the things they look at is a, is a, is a two-axis metric, you know, a vertical and a horizontal uh, graph. And on the vertical is performance. And on the horizontal is trust, right? So that person in the, in the, in the lower left side, that low performer, low trust, of course nobody wants that person. And the upper right quadrant, that high performer, high trust, of course everybody wants that person. What they learned is that on the upper left, the high performer with low trust, that person is a toxic leader. And they would rather have a medium performer of high trust, sometimes even a low performer of high trust, it's a relative scale, over a high performer of low trust. And if you think about business today, we have a million metrics to measure performance and we have negligible to zero metrics to measure trust. And so we're accidentally promoting toxicity inside our companies because someone simply has high performance. And we, we equate that solely with leadership capacity. And here's the folly. Here's the folly. Do you know how easy it is to find the person who's a, a high performer of low trust? Just ask all the people they work with, who's the asshole? And they're all going to point to the same person. <laughs> equally so, equally so, if you ask all the people they work with, who, who do you trust more than anyone on this company in your group, regardless of their performance, but y- you know they got your back no matter what? They'll all point to the same person, even if they're not the highest performer. In other words, it's very easy to find the natural leaders, and it's also very le- easy to find the toxic geniuses. You just got to ask the people. 
but we don't have any system of peer review inside our companies. We all work for the approval of the one person who's above us. And if you happen to have a good leader, that's okay. And if you happen to have a crappy leader, that's not okay. Rather than working for the approval of our peers, which is as important, if not more important, for a tribal animal like human beings. That's incredibly uh, helpful to, to focus on trust. makes me think of uh, Chris Brogan's book, Trust Agents, from, from back in the day. So which bus? I, I want to hit on that. Which bus? And you're talking about the environment. That matters more so than the person. Really interesting. I just recently have gotten into, it's been out for a while, but Dan Buettner's books on the Blue Zone diet and, and Blue Zone solution, where he seeks out the global communities where people live the longest and the most vibrantly. And of course, he showcases how they live and the specifics of what they eat and their their daily activity and mobility and, and those types of things. But then he ultimately boils down and says, at the core, what is the best way for you to emulate that? Get in a community that fosters it. And I hear you saying the same thing. So for those folks who are listening here, uh, and I guess maybe more so for those who are not the business owner, they do not have that, that level of leadership. Yep. You're saying if you want that, you can work to try to foster that community within your workplace but to some degree, I guess you may need to go find one that is a fitting of that culture. Uh, yep. Otherwise, uh, I guess that's it. Well, I get this question all the time. You know, what do I do if I'm in middle management right. and the guy seven levels above me doesn't have a clue, right? Uh-huh. The answer is the same every time, which is ignore them. We cannot control that which we cannot control. You have no influence over the bad leader who's seven levels above you. There's nothing I can do about that. There's no advice I can give you. The only option... The, uh, the option to quit is an option, but it's not the only option. We can also devote ourselves to the journey of becoming the leader we wish we had. And though you may not have uh, authority in the formal sense, you do have people with whom you work. And so you can devote yourself entirely to working to see that the people with whom you work go home every day grateful that they work with you and grateful that the job they have and they have fun at work. You know, And, 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 and we will influence three to five people. And those three to five people will take care of each other, and they will influence three to five people. In other words, the tail can wag the dog. We, in other words, we have to be the leader we wish we, we take care of our own. And, and that's the most fulfilling thing in the world. You know, I'm really tired of, of people saying, you know, how can I find the job I love? You know, like we have an entire section in the bookshop called self-help, and we have no section in the bookshop called help others. Hmm. Right. It's like, how can I lose 10 pounds? How can I find the job that I, that I love? How can I find love in today's modern world? Or how can, I find somebody, how can I help somebody else live a healthy life? How can I help somebody else enjoy a life of career satisfaction and fulfillment? How can I help the people I love find love in their lives? And the irony is that that simple decision, that simple act of service is the single most effective way to find the thing that is so elusive, to find the thing that we're struggling with. When we help people find the problem that we're trying to solve, we ourselves will solve the problem because we create an environment in which everybody will take care of us. And the leadership, the leadership aspect is that we chose to do it first. We didn't wait for anybody. We didn't ask for anything in return. We didn't make any deals. We just did it because we believed it was the right thing to do. And that's what made you a leader. You know, this has been, uh, I hear all these messages my whole life because I grew up with it 10 or 15 years ago. I asked a, a leader, I said, is there ever a time when you fire somebody on the spot? And this is what they said. 
if somebody makes a decision that benefits themselves at the expense of someone else, yes. And that's exactly what you just explained. I always wondered what the why was behind that. But it's always resonated. That's truth because we can't stand it. We can't tolerate it. And from a leadership perspective, it's, it's on steroids. Yeah, I'll tell you a story. It's a story of a company called Barry Waymiller based in St. Louis, Missouri. And it's run by, a company, run by an amazing guy named Bob Chapman. And what they've learned about good leadership, it's manufacturing, good old-fashioned American manufacturing. It's not some fancy technology or anything like that, right? So it's not a, it's not a glamorous business per se. You don't need glamour or, or advanced college degrees to love your job. And uh, one of the things that they've built into their company, which is magical, is empathy. So, um, you know, if somebody's struggling at work, what we traditionally do is go into their office and say, listen, this is the third time I've talked to you about your numbers. You're, you still haven't, you've missed your numbers three times in a row. You've got to fix it. Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. Or we could walk into their office and say, you know, we've had this conversation before and you've missed your numbers for the third time in a row. Are you okay? Like, what's going on? So here's a true story that happened to Barry Waymiller. They, HR discovered that one of their employees was padding his expense reports. Now, technically, this is theft. Technically, this is a crime. And in any other company, that person would have been summarily fired, right, if they discovered it. But at Barry Waymiller, they walked into his office, and they said, we've discovered that you've uh, been padding your expense reports. Are you all right? What's going on? Turns out he was going through a, a really bad divorce, and he'd run out of money, uh, you know, just liquid, liquid cash, and he was expensing meals to his company credit card because he couldn't afford to eat. And the fact that the company expressed empathy for his position, he came completely clean, they put him on a payment plan, and they have no problem with him. Because he, he wasn't a bad guy. He was a desperate guy. There's a difference. Right? So there are people who are bad people inside our organizations. And the question is, are you smart enough to tell? And the answer is you're not. And so until we express a little empathy and try and coach a little bit, and if they're uncoachable and they're not willing to receive any of the, 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 the trust and the help and the, and the empathy that we're willing to offer, and we're convinced that we've, we've really gone above and beyond, then absolutely remove that person. They're toxic for the environment. Or if they violate some law or some serious ethical uh, uh, rule, then absolutely, you know, we have no place for those people. But an environment of empathy breeds empathy. And uh, it's... Um, it's woefully lacking in, 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 in many of our businesses today. You know, I, I like performance, but, but I see money as fuel, not as, not as a, a net result. You used the analogy of the car before. You know, it's like the company, the company is a car. And yes, absolutely, you've got to have fuel because you want to keep the company going for as long as possible. But the goal is not to just to get fuel and then go nowhere. The goal is to get fuel and go somewhere. And that's what vision is. It's the place we're trying to get to. And money is fueling our vision. And it's taking care of our people and it's keeping the car mobile. And the more money we have, the faster we can go. And so, of course, we want to make money. But just understand that it's, it's, it's not the thing. It's the thing that supports the thing. Thank you for emulating the exact epitome of what we look for in this show is, uh, you know, the Ziegler message of helping enough others get what they want to get what you want and to uh, you're calling us to actually just care. There's the magic pill 
So Simon, in, in again, being such an advocate of what you are doing and putting this out to people and such a benefit from your messages, what can we look for next from you? So, um, you know, my, my work is semi-autobiographical, you know, so start with why I came from my own struggles to find my own passion or to rediscover my own passion. And then leaders eat last came from my struggle to under, to trust people, you know, as, as things started to grow, I, I started to have these experiences where people just wanted stuff from me and they acted like my friends and it sort of shook my foundations a little bit. And so now I realize that I'm an idealist. Unfortunately, I operate in the world and the world is, doesn't always see the way things the way I see them. And so I can rage against the machine or I can better understand the environment in which I have to live and work. And so I've become fascinated with sort of um, game theory and, and sort of environmental things. Um, and so uh, I'm working on stuff to better understand my work in the context of the real world. And, uh, and hopefully that will show up uh, in the not too distant future as, as, another, as, another, as another idea. Hopefully in the form of a book and a TED talk. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, we, we're already, I'm already writing a book on it as my, cause I've been thinking about this stuff for a few years now. Um, and, uh, my agent says that I ran out of excuses why I shouldn't write the book. So he's probably right. So I, I I'm working on it and it's, it's been an amazing education. I, I, I love that comment because, uh, a psychologist went to dad and said, you asked him a bunch of questions, and here was the end result. Dad did not care uh, that the audience was disengaged or had issues, whatever audience he was going to. His only care was, how do I have impact? Yeah. So he wasn't discouraged that they weren't in the mindset that he wanted to be when he walked in. His only, pro- his only concern was, what can I do to reach where they are? And yep. that's, exa- that's exactly what you just said. I love that. Well, we all love and admire your dad, and, and he, he, he serves as one of the, the, the torchbearers that we, we hope to take his torch and carry it forwards. Amen. Thank you, Simon, for doing exactly that on this. Our audience will be incredibly benefited by listening to this. We've given them your information. Of course, folks, again, start with why.com, and you can find Simon anywhere you type his name into. Thank you so much for just the gift of giving yourself to us today, Simon. My pleasure, and thank you so much for giving me a forum to share my ideas. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you. Yep. Thank you, thank folks. You. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you in the next Ziggler Show. Ziggler Show.